were made to be courageous. We were made to be courageous. Good morning, everyone. I'm glad that you're here today. Uh, today we hit part two of our summer series called Courageous. And I'm so glad that you get to hear from my good friend, Jared McElroy. Uh, Jared and his wife, Christine, and their two boys are a huge part of uh, Hilton Head Island Community Church. Of course, you see Christine as she leads worship from time to time, one of our worship leaders. And Jared uh, was previously on staff at Savannah Christian Church and has led numerous missions teams all over the world and has spoken here before. I'm glad that you're going to get to hear him because today God has laid on his heart uh, to bring to us a message from uh, the character Elijah and what you and I can learn about being courageous from this great character from the Old Testament. So why don't you give a warm welcome to Jared McElroy. Good morning. How's everyone doing today? Just to let you know if you were freaked out by that as I was, I believe the bird was in the video. If you're here today, I was looking around, I'm like, what happened? So anyways, um, anyways, welcome to Hilton Head Island Community Church. So glad that you're here. As Todd said, I've uh, had the pleasure and the honor of sharing Todd's pulpit now for the fourth time and just sharing the Word of God with you, and I'm so excited about that. Before we go anywhere f any further, I want to just go to the Lord in prayer real quick. Father God, we thank you so much uh, for this day and just for the truth that you speak, God, and I pray that they would be your words that come through me today and your truth and uh, pray that you would open hearts and minds and hearts uh, to your word and um, pray that lives would be, would be changed and that we would recognize you as the author of that change, God. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So as, as Todd told you, um, I was on staff at Savannah Christian Church uh, some years ago. Uh, by profession, I am a chef, uh, which qualifies me greatly to be up here. Um, but really, it's that time that I, I, I spent at Savannah Christian Church, and um, I gave my life to Christ down in Savannah. Um, and shortly after doing so, I, I went on staff at the church, uh, working in their youth ministry. But one of the great blessings I had while being on staff there was the ability to go on mission trips every year. Uh, and so I chose to go on uh, mission trips to India each year that I, that I worked there. So I got to go three years in a row. I, I went back to India and I actually led the team of people over to India. And it was just absolutely amazing. And what we would do over in India was we would support a mission um, called Central India Christian Mission and uh, Mid-India Christian Mission, which, crazy story, sister thing, yeah, anyways. A, a crazy story about those two missionaries uh, doing work in that area, but they were great and wonderful people, Ajay and Pavert, Lal, and uh, we would go and just travel all over central India and go to these small rural churches and really support their staff and encourage them, and we'd preach, give them the day off. Largely, what we were there for was we were a bunch of Americans, and so People from India who had never met an American really want to come meet an American. So they'd be like, hey, listen, tons of Americans are going to be in town. Come on over and see us. And there would be people that would drive hours just to come see an American. So we were the bait and switch. They were like, come see an American. Here's the gospel. And like that's what we were there for, which was awesome and God-honoring. And people gave their lives to Christ. And it was amazing. 
So the second part of our trip, we would go to the mission headquarters in Demo, in Demo, which is in central India, and we would serve at a youth conference for over 3,500 high school and college youth in central India. And it was absolutely amazing. Some of the stories of the prayers that we prayed over these kids are just astounding. But probably the most memorable time I had was just the opportunity to sit in a room and hear the story of some of these missionaries. These local missionaries, these Indian men who went out and planted churches. And some of the harrowing stories that they had. Probably the most memorable one for me is of this man named Emmanuel. And he was just like a tiny, tiny guy. Like Todd would look like the tall guy in the room compared to this one. Okay? I mean, he was a small, small guy and really actually pretty, pretty soft-spoken. Um, but his story was so powerful. And I want to share that with you today. He, um, he grew up, found, found Jesus, and then came to the missionary uh, came to the mission and, and was trained in their, in their missionary college and then went off and planted a church in his home area, which was a rural area of central India. And one week, he and his wife were leading uh, Holy Week services. And after one of those Holy Week services, they were on their way home, uh, riding their bike, and they were attacked by seven men, seven uh, Hindu, rather extremist men who uh, beat them with rebar rods and pipes and bats, and they beat them to within an inch of their lives. And after they had done that, they tied Emmanuel to a tree, and they started to do unspeakable things to his wife. And all in the same time, they were saying, listen, we will stop this if you just deny Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Emmanuel told us it was at that moment that his wife's voice rang out. She screamed to him. They can do what they want, but never, ever deny Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Never. Strengthened by her courage, Emmanuel stayed firm in his faith. And shortly afterwards, a a man came by who was walking through the woods, and, and, and the attackers were scared and, and ran away. And then uh, Emmanuel and his wife were transported to the mission's hospital in Demo, India, where Emmanuel clung to life for weeks in a coma. During that time, his wife uh, ended up passing away. And to make matters even worse, um, the unborn child that they didn't even know they had, their first child, passed away with his or her mother as well. You're like, why are you telling us this? Like, we're on vacation, or we liked our vacation so much we moved down here. Like, why would you tell us this? We kind of love this island bubble that we've created. We don't have, that's something for that side of the world. We don't even have to, like, I'm never going to contend for my faith like that. Why? Well, I want, to, I want to look at this story because I think we can all agree there is a depth of courage that this man and woman displayed that is something so great that we, 
possibly never understand it. And I pray that we would never have to exhibit a depth of strength and courage in the way that they had to. But I pray that we would find where that depth of strength and courage comes from today. Because that's our question. Is where, where does that depth come from in the, in the courage of these people? Where does the depth come from for it to take an Indian couple and have them plant a church amid violent hostility? Where does the depth of courage come for us here on Hilton Head Island to boldly share the gospel with our neighbors? To boldly live out lives so gospel-centered that as people watched us live, they would understand the gospel? Where does that boldness and that strength and that depth of courage come from? Well, to look at that today, I want to look at the life of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18. And we're going to pick it up at verse 25. Um, So if you turn your Bibles over there, we're going to get going in in verse 25. But I'm going to give you some background on Elijah before, before we get going. Elijah was the prophet of God. Uh, during the reign of Ahab, uh, king of Israel. Now, Israel at that point had divided into the northern and southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was Judah, and the northern kingdom was Israel. And the northern kingdom was the more wicked of the two kingdoms. And that was the one that fell first. Um, And this is what the writer of the book of Kings says about King Ahab, the king of the wicked northern kingdom. It says that he was evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So this guy was not good at all. God's like, okay, those guys were bad. This guy takes the cake, okay? What happened in this time was that he married a woman from Sidon, which was an area of Baal worship. And Baal was a Semitic god of that time named Hadad. And the, name, and the word Baal actually means Lord, and that was the title that they gave him. Hadad was a god of the storms. And so people would sacrifice to him and worship him for rain because this was an agrarian society. And rain was the lifeblood of their economy. They needed rain in order for their crops to grow, in order for their animals to be watered, in order for their livelihood to flourish. So Ahab and his wife Jezebel set up houses of worship, set up a main house of worship to the god Hadad or Baal. And they set up altars all over the northern kingdom of Israel. And so God called Elijah and said, I want you to go to to Ahab and confront him. And this is what you're going to tell him. You're going to tell him that there is going to be a drought. So God is making a direct attack on this false god, Hadad, who's supposed to bring water and rain. And he's saying, there's going to be a drought. There's not even going to be a drop of rain. There won't even be dew in the morning on the grass. It's going to be so bad, and it's going to continue until I say it stops. So God presents 
Elijah before Ahab. Ahab makes this proclamation. And then God pulls Elijah away and tells him to go hide at the brook Cherith, which is in Sidon, right by where Jezebel grew up. And in that time, he was, God just built him up and was nourishing him and feeding him. Miraculously, ravens would come with meat and fruit and bread and feed Elijah. And during this tremendous time of drought, he had water from this brook. And then after three years, God called him back and was said, okay, the drought, I'm calling the drought to an end. And this is what's going to happen. I'm going to do this in such a spectacular way that all the people of Israel will absolutely, without a doubt, recognize that, is, that it is the one true God of Israel who ended this drought and that it could not be Baal or Hadad. So he sends Elijah over to, over to Ahab again. And Elijah tells Ahab, listen, go get all your prophets of Baal all throughout Israel, which number 450 of them, and get all the people of Israel and bring them to Mount Carmel. And then we're going to have a showdown. I mean, this is a straight up profit off. I mean, it's like, it is, it is going down. And so Elijah goes up there, one guy against 450 on the other side. He says, this is how we're going to do it. You're going to take a bull. I'm going to take a bull. We're going to sacrifice the bull. We're going to put it on an altar. Whoever's bull gets consumed by fire, that's whose God is real. So if your, God, if, if your bull gets consumed by fire, Baal is the, is, is the one true God. And if my bull gets consumed by fire, well, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel is the one true God. People of Israel are like, Man, that's not, that sounds reasonable. Let's get this on. So that's where we pick it up in verse 25, where Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first, for you are many and call upon your God, but do not put fire to it. See, Elijah lets them go first so that they have no excuses. They get to choose the best bull. They get to choose the proper place for them to, to sacrifice it. They get to choose the right time for them to do it. He can't, they can't come back and be like, well, you chose the better bull, so our God was a little upset about that, so he decided not to come. No, you guys choose. I'll take whatever's left over. All right? Perfect. So he goes forward, and they take the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar they made, and noon, and at noon, Elijah mocked them. Now, I have to confess to you, as someone that has been known as mildly snarky in my life, this next part is something that I truly love, okay? <clears throat> Elijah says to them, cry aloud, for he is a god, right? Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and you need to just and he needs to be awakened. I mean, you can just see him standing there being like, Oh, is your God having, are you having some problems? Maybe he's daydreaming. Oh, did your God have to tinkle? 
maybe, maybe you went away. I hear Paris is great this time of year. Maybe just talk a little louder. Maybe he's asleep. I mean, this is one guy against 450. This is some courage right there. To stand there and just, oh, are you having some problems? This is some courage, right? And so the prophets of Baal, they're provoked by this. And so what ends up happening is they cried aloud and they cut themselves after their customs with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. You see, one of the myths about Baal at this time, about Hadad, was that his father actually cut his chest and his arms and his back when he found out his son Hadad had died. And as a result of this this action, it is believed that the rains came and Hadad came back to life. So that's why he's the god of why he's the god of the storms. And that is why these men started cutting themselves to emulate his father so that they could take so that they could please their God and that maybe he would just say something. Send a little fire. But as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no answer, no one paid attention. It was silence. Nothing. No fire. Nothing. Elijah gave them every opportunity. The choice of bull, the choice of place, the choice of time, and there was nothing. So Elijah's like, continues on. So I says to the people, come near to me. All right, you had your opportunity? Check this out. Here we go. Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. From here, Elijah prepares the sacrifice on an altar that he builds with 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. He prepares the bull. They dig a trench around it, and they pour water all over the bull, and there's this huge ceremonial aspect of preparing this bull. And then, and then Elijah stands before this great crowd of people and these prophets of Baal that obviously must be pretty upset at this point because their God didn't show up for them. And he says to them, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And then fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering. This is where our courage comes from, right? This is where it comes from. I mean... Some of us are sitting there thinking, man, if only the God of the Old Testament would show up every now and then for me, man, my whole neighborhood would be converted by now. Just invite a bunch of people over, take them in the backyard, lift your arms in prayer and be like, Father God, I'm surrounded by a bunch of people that don't know you. I come to you with this sacrifice of ribeyes. Can we please get four medium rare? Four mediums. I know not to ask anything above that. Right? 
I mean, before they even get to the potato salad, you're baptizing them in your kids' pools. They bite into the steak. They're like, this is divine. Yes, it is. I mean, our whole, our whole neighborhoods, if God would just show up like that, what would our nation look like, right? How courageous could we be if we could just count on that? No. It's not that. That's not where it comes from. Because we turn over literally a chapter and we find out that Elijah, in this great moment of victory, he calls, all, calls to all the people. He's like, get all those prophets of Baal. Capture them. Kill them. Humongous victory. Now, there will be rain again. We won the day, right? Absolutely. So then, he and Ahab go and travel back to Jezreel, which is where Ahab lived with his, with his wife Jezebel. They traveled separately, and the Bible tells us that Ahab on his chariot was traveling there, and Elijah actually ran ahead of him. Now, this was a 17-mile journey. So you imagine 17 miles from here. You go running, you get there, and then... Ahab gets to see his wife, tells him all about it. It's like, listen, sweetie, you wouldn't believe what just happened. All those prophets of Baal that you just brought from Sidon that you like set up for us to worship, boom, gone. See you later. He killed them all. And then there was this fire that came down from the heaven, and it was just like, whoa, okay? It was amazing. Changes her heart too, correct? Nope. Not at all. Chapter 19, verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah, saying, May the gods do to me more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, referring to the prophets of Baal, by, the time, by this time tomorrow. Basically, you got 24 hours. I'm going to kill you. Okay. Surely, this is not going to be the end of this. Elijah just had this massive triumph, right? Killed 450 people. And a woman sends him a message during the, during the, in the amount of time it takes to travel 17 miles and have a conversation with your wife. Suddenly, I mean, surely that's not going to be the, the end of it, right? Verse 3. Then he was afraid. And he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba. 17 miles in a conversation. That's how long it took. That's how long it took. <laughs> because I think what happens here is what happens a lot of time in our, in our, own, in our own life is that the, the cacophony of noise and of celebration and of these, mild vi of these victories of God, we sometimes forget to put the focus back on him. So we lose sight. And so what does God do? God tells him, God tells Elijah, he moves him to, to the wilderness outside of Beersheba, which is actually in the kingdom of Judah, in the southern kingdom. And he takes him in down there, he feeds him, he nourishes him, he miraculously brings him food and bread, just like he did at the brook Cherith where he was building him up before. And he takes him out into a cave and he says, stand at the front of the cave. He says, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke into pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. 
and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him, and it said, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? I mean, you can hear God. I built you up at the brook Cherith. I nourished you. I fed you miraculously during this time when everybody else was starving. I, I built you up. I took you to Mount Carmel where I, God, performed this miracle for you and for the people of Israel to prove that I am the one true God. And here we are. Why? Are you here? It's because of this. It's because Elijah did not stop to refocus his heart and mind on the one true source of that miracle. You see, how often in our lives are we guilty of the same thing? where we don't pay attention to the still, small voice of God in our lives. The author, Philip Yancey, wrote a book called Prayer, where he dives into the theology of prayer, the theory of prayer, all the dilemmas that come about prayer. Then he gets into the practical aspect of prayer, and he asks the first question he asks is this simple question. He says, are you tuned into God? Are you making space in your life to hear the slow, small whisper of God in your life? Are you listening for that still small voice that is God calling on your heart? Here's the point today. The depth and resolve of our courage is refined by a fruitful prayer life. Let me repeat that. The depth and resolve of our courage is refined by a fruitful fruitful prayer life. I'm not going to say that again. Often, when Jesus was preaching to a crowd, he would say, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. I mean, we all have ears, right? But are we tuned in? Are we listening for the truth that God is putting out there for us? Or are we being distracted by the noise and the cacophony of society that's out there just trying to take your attention away or give the glory that is from the creator to something else that is created? Far often it's the second of those that we we get distracted by the noise. So we're going to go back to Emmanuel. When he woke up out of this coma, Ajay, the director of the mission, of the mission in Demo, had to inform him that his wife had passed away and that his first child that he didn't even know they were going to have passed away as well. 
And he told them that they didn't even know if he was going to survive. So they had a memorial service for his wife without him and for his child without him. And Emmanuel confided in us that it took a long, long time for him to reconcile this fact because he couldn't, he didn't know what happened. But as he was being fed and nourished and nurtured at the mission in Damo, he started to pray. He started to pray fervently. And without ceasing, he started to pray. And one day Ajay came to him and said, listen, we, you're more than welcome to stay here and come on staff. He said, no, I need to go replant that church. And so he went home and he replanted that church. And he told us that he prayed endlessly and ceaselessly for the men that attacked him. Because he came into contact with them almost every day. And every time he saw one of them, he said, God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. And these men were so enraged by this that after a while they came to him and were like, don't you remember what we did to you, to your wife? And you're saying, God bless you? And then he was able to share the gospel with them. And to this day, up until, from from what I know, the last I heard, before Emmanuel died in a tragic car accident, four of those men were baptized into Christ. Two of them I met at the youth conference because they worked at his church with the youth. Think about that for a second. That is amazing. And it started with the still, small voice of God calling a man who is beaten and tortured to replant the church. If he had listened to the sound of society and everything, he probably would have played it safe. But he went back. He went back for the souls of the men who attacked him. So what, so what does it take to get that type of depth in our life? What does it take for us to live boldly and courageously for the gospel here on Hilton Head Island? It takes us tuning in. But first and foremost, in order to tune in, you have to first do what these, what these men did. And that's acknowledge that you have sinned. Now you're probably sitting there saying like, well, listen, hey, whoa. Never have I attacked a missionary, killed his wife, done unspeakable things to her, and put him in a coma. So obviously, I'm not doing that bad. Right? Well, the book of Romans clearly tells us that all have fallen sin, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have fallen into sin, and sin is sin. Whether it be a lie or a falling into the temptation of pleasure, whether it be just behind the back snarkiness of cutting someone down, sin is sin. And the wage of that sin is eternal separation from, from God. We've all, we all fall into that category, every single one of us. 
But the book of Romans also tells us that there is one thing that can come between that separation and bridge the gap that's been created because of sin between us and God. And that is the sacrifice of a perfect Savior. And that sacrifice was made by God himself when he came down from heaven and lived on this earth in the form of Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life without sin. He went to the cross and he died a blameless death. And then on the third day, to pronounce the power and the glory that is the fact that he is God, he raised again from the dead. It is that that we put our faith in. It is that that bridges the gap between God and us and our sin. When we come to our last breath, And we stand before God and God judges us. He says, what, what about all this? If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ and truly believe that he died for you to save your life eternally, well then he stands between you and the wrath of God and says, no, I've covered him. And God says, well done good and faithful servant and you stand before God and you worship for all eternity. So where's your confidence? Where's your courage? What's your courage like standing on? Is it on a foundation of things finite and things earthly? Is it on your income? The economy can take that in a second. Is it on your job or your abilities? That can go away in a, in a moment. I could, lo- I could lose my ability to do my job as a chef in a, in a car accident with a broken leg. Can't be a chef if you can't stand. Is it your health? Listen, you don't know if you have 50 years, 5 years, or 5 seconds left on this earth. Is that where your courage is, is, is standing on? Because your courage, the depth of your courage will only be as shallow as the thing that you rested on. So why not rest it on the thing eternal, the thing infinite, and the thing that is great and mighty and wonderful, which is God? The second step is to tune in. It's to make room for God in your life, to hear him, to hear the still small whisper of the one true God. What's it take? Let's, take, let's start with five minutes. Because sometimes we hear these stories about someone like George Mueller or um, Martin Luther or, or John Calvin who had these amazing legendary prayer lives of hours of day on your knees just crying out to God. We're like, I can't even do that. Listen, do you open up a pair of running shoes for the first time and try and run a marathon? No. You run down the block. You get a stitch and you, and you like limp back, you know? Like that's what happens. You go down to the end of the block and you come back. So that's what we need to do when we start our prayer life. Five minutes. What happens if you miss it? Don't beat yourself up. Get back on it and do it again the next day. 
Listen, I understand. We've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old. Our prayer life was amazing when we were, when we were dating. When we got married, and here's the thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess to you right now. I feel like an idiot when I pray. I feel like an absolute moron when I pray. I think, and if any of you, if any of you guys are out there, I, I grew up Catholic, and I think it has something to do with it, even though I'm not saying all Catholics don't know how to pray, because if you think that, you should probably read Mother Teresa's like, prayer journals. They're amazing. But anyways, so I grew up in a, in a you know, kind of a Christmas, Easter family of Catholics. Those are the two days we went a year. And so basically, prayer for me was like, hey, repeat after me. Here you go, da-da-da. So for me, praying to God is like, I'm, what? I don't, even, I don't even know what to say. So I feel like, a, so when I'm preaching this message today, this message is so much more for me than it is for you because, oh, what it would be like to pray and seek the face of God and to pray idealistically and unrelent, unrelenting and just to pray big and wonderful things that I don't even think are accomplishable, but there's a God who can accomplish them. How amazing would that be to see our society change because a group of churchgoers in Hilton Head began to pray for those around them and God changed their heart because they started listening to him and they started attending to the needs of the people in their community. They started going after the hearts of their neighbors because their neighbors did not have eternity granted them. And we took that seriously because we sat there and we listened to God. Oh, what this community would be like if we got on our knees and sought the presence of the one true God. I want to leave you with a with a thought, F.B. Meyer said, the greatest tragedy in the world isn't unanswered prayers. It's unoffered prayers. How about we go away from here with answer, with seeking prayers and not leaving any unoffered and realizing that they're all going to be answered. Maybe not the way we want, but they're all going to be answered. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. And God, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you sent your son to come and to die for us, to take away our sins so that we might live with you in eternity. God, I pray that you would give us the boldness and the strength to seek your face and to seek your will, that you would give us the discipline to listen for you, to hear your voice, and to act. Father, I pray that you would, that we would, each and every one of us, just center our lives around you, around Jesus. Amen.